electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with uh, Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today, the post-Fed hangover. Stocks are lower, especially tech. Apple, Amazon, NVIDIA down more than 3%. We'll talk about the market ramifications. Plus, the CEO of T-Mobile as that company looks to expand coverage in the face of inflation and a possible weaker consumer. And then crypto, the so-called canary in the coal mine. We got the CEO of Silvergate, the company loaning MicroStrategy those millions to buy more Bitcoin. But let's begin with the market. Close to session lows here. We lost 30K earlier this morning, 36.63. Mike Santoli, and the week's not over. No, Carl, it's pretty indiscriminate today. Uh, the Nasdaq, yes, is slightly underperforming the S&P 500, but really not that much. Uh, actually, the breath on the Nasdaq is not even as nasty as it is on the New York Stock Exchange. But here's the Nasdaq 100. You now have this from the highs down by more than a third, more than 33% intraday basis. Uh, remember, the high for the Nasdaq 100 goes back to November, not January 3rd with the S&P peak. And I'll just point out, I mean, it's been a very, very steady uh, downtrend. And maybe you could look at that and say, OK, if this is a channel that we've been trading down, then we're certainly at the lower end of it. Maybe you get some relief. But clearly, the, uh, the direction of travel has been pretty clear right here. We are now in the mode of looking for, you know, just really conditions that seem so bad such liquidation uh, that maybe finally it gets uh, fairly climactic. We haven't necessarily gotten there yet. Take a look at a longer term chart of the NASDAQ 100 going back three years. So this goes back before the pandemic. Uh, you actually have lost more from the peak uh, in the last several months uh, than you did in the COVID crash. The COVID crash right here was uh, just over 30 percent intraday peak to peak. A couple of numbers I'm kind of keeping an eye on, you know, after we got that huge momentum surge in the Nasdaq off of the low of COVID, um, you did have that spike in early September. Remember that Apple splitting its stock, Tesla splitting its stock, then a pretty good correction uh, that we got into the uh, into the election. So you're kind of going back to the lows of that correction. Not not clear if that's going to be significant. We have also lost more than half of what was gained from here to the peak. So look, a lot of damage done, a lot of that valuation premium swept away. A lot of folks saying, so many things have gone back to pre-pandemic levels. Do the big NASDAQ stocks need to do that? Certainly unclear. Valuations, if the earnings hold up for what it's worth, are back to pre-pandemic or actually below the pre-pandemic peak, guys. Maybe this is a dumb question, but why are the first two hours of trade so far today so different from the last two hours of trade yesterday? Is it Europe's reaction uh, that that's being factored in here? Something else? I think Europe, John, is, is certainly the thing that you can most tangibly pin things to. But Europe has a symptom of what's been bothering the market for a very long time, which is inflation being stubborn enough to have central banks act very dramatically in response, having global yields surge. Uh, and then, you know, the don't fight the Fed and don't fight the tape rules, which, you know, kind of rules number one and two for, for traders or tactical investors. 
both of them are telling you to stay cautious. So I, I do think it's it's more or less, you know, we, we've been testing lows. They've not really held. Uh, we do have this big options expiration tomorrow. <clears throat> a lot of people saying that's exacerbating the moves uh, and you get just this sort of crucible of volatility uh, drivers this week that maybe are going to abate going into next week. So I think we can throw all that together. Interestingly, U.S. Treasury yields have backed up a little bit. So still waiting to see if that's going to provide any support for stocks intraday. Yeah. So, Mike, it feels like everywhere we look, the news is not great. You've got U.S. tightening, Europe tightening. China, however, is doing the opposite. They're looking at a potentially looser monetary policy, even stimulus. Those stocks, the Chinese ADRs, have actually been rebounding over the last few weeks. But today they are down across the board. So what are they responding to? I, I think they're just caught up in the global uh, tide at this point. And, you know, yes, China stimulus used to be good for a headline that would definitely get risk appetites going. But at this point, I think what everyone else is focused on, slow down risks across the rest of the world. And China, of course, not necessarily acting from a strong position. I would put it that way. Now, it has been a pretty pronounced trend over the last several weeks that China tech has dramatically outperformed U.S. tech. And if you looked at that as a relative trade, it's still kind of working. Uh, so we'll see if that continues. Mike, appreciate that. Mike Santoli starting us off this hour. Uh, is there more pain ahead for the market when it comes to tech? Toma Bravo's founder, Orlando Bravo, a major software investor, thinks so. Take a listen. I think there's more pain to come. I, I do. Uh, because when those companies really start getting down to answering the investor question that you mentioned, the path to profitability, they're not going to love what they see. Uh, that requires a lot of cost reductions, it requires a lot of pain, and it's difficult to execute, especially in a public setting. Joining us this morning is the Tory Fund founder, Dan Niles, who also expects a lot more volatility uh, in the days ahead. Dan, great to have you back. Good morning. Morning, Carl. Uh, you've been a good uh, seer uh, in recent years, especially in the depths of the pandemic, uh, watching fear levels and, and making some pretty provocative calls. Where are you right now regarding uh, sentiment and positioning, and where is your mix of long shorts at the moment and cash? Yeah, um, so I think this reaction to the Fed is relatively predictable because if you look back over Jerome Powell's history at the Fed, you know, when the stock market has been up at least 1% during one of Powell's meetings, the next day it's down five out of seven times. And if you even think about May, it bounced. 3% the day of the Fed meeting, and the next day it went down 3.6%. So this is a pretty predictable pattern. And I think right now the stock market is dealing with the fact that you don't want to fight the Fed, just like you didn't want to fight it for the last 13 years when they were excessively loose. And you don't want to fight the fundamentals because numbers are continuing to come down. So for us, we're still pretty cautious. So we have over, I think, 15% of the fund is sitting in cash. We have a fair bit of longs, um, but we're balanced that out with a fair bit of shorts. And I think we're still playing for ultimately the market is down 30 to 50 percent from its peak because multiples still have to go down a lot more before this is all through. Doesn't mean you're not going to get great bear market rallies along the way, but that's the ultimate what you're playing for and what you don't want to lose sight of. So, all right, let's just take the valuation part. Do we sink below the, the, the pandemic low of 14.7 times? Well, absolutely. Because if you kind of think about it, 
If you look back over 70 years of worth of history, when the CPI is above 5%, the S&P trailing PE is 12 times. If you want to be completely optimistic and assume somehow you get below 3% in the near term, the trailing PE multiples 15 times. You're at 19. So to get from 19 times to 15 times, you still got to go down 20%. If you want to get back to 12 times, which is the average, when it's above five, and obviously we're above eight right now, you've got to go down 35%. So, and that's not taking into account the fact that I think the majority of companies are going to have to cut their numbers when they report. Don't forget, Target guided lower three weeks after they gave guidance. Microsoft did it six weeks after they gave guidance. Intel sort of soft pre-announced six weeks after they gave guidance. These are massive companies that are coming out very quickly after they've already guided to cut numbers again. And I think it's going to get worse when you see what Q2 results are for the, for, for the market in general when all of these companies have to report and guide. Hey, Dan, good morning. First, a nod to where we are. The Dow is down at the moment uh, more than 820 points. The S&P is off 3.4%. The Nasdaq off more than 4%. But you've been kind of bearish for a while, and things have moved your way. We're about 35% off the NASDAQ November high, I think. I think we're uh, almost 25% off the S&Ps. So we only got 300 points to go on the S&P before we're in your zone, right, of 30 to 50% down from the peaks. At that point, do you shift your strategy at all? Well, it depends on what the fundamentals are doing, John. I mean, if you think about you know, when the tech bubble burst, it took you two and a half years to get to the ultimate bottom. Now, same thing with the global financial crisis. It took a while. And but it didn't mean that you didn't get five rallies between 18 to 21 percent on the S&P 500, five separate rallies of 18 to 21 percent while you lost 50 percent of your money over that period of time. So you're going to get these bear market rallies, sucker rallies, dead cat bounces, whatever you want to call it, on the way lower, because every three months or so, companies cut their numbers when they report. They say, oh, you know, the investors go, oh, my God, this is the bottom. It's a buying opportunity. The stocks are so low. And then the fundamentals keep getting worse and they go lower again when they report another 90 days later. And I think that's what you're kind of in for right now. So. I'm watching the fundamentals to tell me when the ultimate real bottom is. It's not so much the price, but there's a time component of this that I think, unfortunately, for investors, if you haven't been investing for longer than 13 years, which is the period of time the Fed's been just pumping up the economy anytime there was a problem, driving valuations absolutely crazy, you don't realize that it can take you a year and a half to two years during a recession to find the ultimate fundamental bottom. I think that's what we're in for because the central banks have just started to raise rates. They've got a lot further to go. Yeah, 13 years. So a lot of the newer, younger investors, this may be the first uh, hard pill to swallow, Dan. One of your long trades um, has worked to your benefit, and that is Chinese tech. Last time you were on, you favored it over U.S. tech. Um, We were just talking about this with Mike Santoli. However, it's sort of being dragged down with everything else today, despite sort of a looser monetary policy in China, as well as the potential of stimulus. Are you getting out of that trade at this point? No, because I think here's the big difference between Chinese tech and U.S. tech. In China, there's three big things that drove that market down. And don't forget, Chinese tech is down about 70 percent from its size. I think U.S. tech's down about 35 percent. So it's nowhere even close. But with China tech, you had the drive to common prosperity. You had 
lots of regulation, and they're still shutting down cities on COVID cases. Those are all self-inflicted wounds that they're doing. In the U.S., that's not what's going on. In the U.S., we're dealing with the fight with inflation. You're dealing with companies cutting estimates. That's what's doing a lot of the damage here. So in China, if they said, look, we're going to adopt more of a U.S. policy in terms of how we're dealing with COVID, um, we're going to, you know, they've already actually said the regulation part of it, it's, it's easing quite a bit. Um, they've also talked about putting in stimulus. So they're in a very different spot. But don't forget, we're short a lot of U.S. tech. We've got a basket that's short about 15 percent of our assets in the portfolio against U.S. tech. And then we've got some individual shorts on top of all of that. So we're balancing those positions out. And the big picture, right, the market's down 30 to 50. It's going to be very hard for any long to be up. We just need it to outperform and then have our shorts do the work for us. That's why we're actually having a good month this month with the market down 10 percent. Hey, finally, Dan, just a touch of geopolitics. Uh, NBC News is reporting that U.S. officials are quietly discussing whether Zelensky should soften his position of not giving up land to end the war. It's according to U.S. and European officials. How are you hedging against the possibility that one day we're going to walk into the office and see Ukraine with a giant pivot and, I don't know, create a potential face ripper? Well, I mean, what you're trying to do is what we've been tweeting about. So if you look at under at Daniel T. Niles, we have, you know, a lot of technical metrics that we use to help guard us against face ripping rallies. And I think we've had a pretty good history, if you look back over this last year. I mean, one of the positions we have on right now, begrudgingly, quite honestly, to hedge against the risk you're talking about is we're short a little bit of oil. Because the moment that happens, oil prices are going to absolutely plunge. Um, but, you know, in general, we're bullish on commodities. If you remember entering this year, the USO was one of our top five picks for the year, along with cash. So for us, you know, on a day by day basis, you're looking at the headlines, you're figuring out what's going on. We'll probably cover some of our, our shorts towards the end of the day today if the market's still down over three percent. But it's still not oversold. And I think that's what younger investors need to realize. Every time the market has a rally like it did yesterday, it means that you have to go down a lot further than the prior low to get to oversold levels. So the majority of our metrics are still not oversold, even with today's move lower. So that's the unfortunate math that you need to deal with. But the bigger issue is fundamentals are going to be terrible when these big tech companies report and guide. That's really what you want to be focused on because multiples are high versus a face ripper rally if Zelensky decides, you know, hey, we're going to get to peace. At some point, you got to believe that's going to happen. But I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. Right. Oh, that's why the next few weeks and this so-called pre-announcement season are going to be so key. Uh, Dan, as always, a great insight. We're grateful. Thanks. No. Thank you very much, Carl. Carl, remember when shorts were going extinct early last year? Well, life finds a way. <laughs> All 11 S&P sectors in the red, the three worst performing right now, energy, consumer discretionary, and tech. Let's talk about what a company is doing to navigate this macro environment and inflation. T-Mobile announcing an expansion providing high-speed data to more than 210 locations and free in-flight internet and streaming on some big U.S. airlines. T-Mobile and other carriers trading lower this morning in the broader sell-off. And joining us now in a first on CNBC interview, T-Mobile U.S. CEO 
Mike Sievert. Mike, great to have you. I, I want to talk about the consumer in this inflationary environment. You say that you guys aren't raising prices, but surely your costs are going up. So what's the strategy? Is it, I mean, you seem to be you know, bringing on benefits like a luxury credit card, right? Is it reducing churn and, and boosting loyalty? Well, you know, uh, John, our strategy has been consistent for a decade now, which is we make big investments in our customers. And because of that, more customers join the uncarrier. And one of the things you'll notice about today's big investment is that it's so well-timed with what's on consumers' minds. You know, as Dan just said in the last segment, consumers are stressed out right now. They're worried about the economy. They're worried about inflation. But simultaneously, after two years of lockdowns and uh, COVID, they're ready to travel. And those two things create a combined pressure. So we're able to use our size and our scale to make huge investments for our customers to make travel easier. And what the Uncarrier does, we smash pain points. And this is a big one, this, this travel move we're announcing today. Okay, so does that mean that your expectation is as inflation pushes prices harder, consumers are looking for a deal from the brands they trust and maybe they're willing to sweep in some spending that they would put elsewhere to stick with you. Is, is that because I know you say your strategy hasn't changed, but the consumer sure has changed. Absolutely. You know, and by the way, look at how our competitors are responding to this macroeconomic environment. In the last month or so, we've seen two billion dollars of price increases being slammed on American consumers by AT&T and Verizon combined. That's nuts. Right, the, right at the time when consumers are most concerned about inflation, that's not the way to handle it. What we're doing is we're creating new benefits and new value. And to your point, you know, we're putting those values in our best plans. Magenta Max is our most popular plan. And when people select Magenta Max because we're solving their travel problems, well, that may actually make our revenues rise. And if that happens, everyone wins. So for us economically, this is about loving our customers and attracting more of them, but also having them rise up to our very best and most popular plans where we have a chance to make that return on revenues. Hey, Mike, it's Deirdre. It's good to have you on the show. Um, you're positive on travel now. You say the consumers, they're ready to get out and travel. Certainly we've seen that. But as the economy softens, prices remain high. Um, do you expect that to continue? Are there other ways in which you can serve your customer that you're looking ahead to if that falls off, if we do enter a recession? Yeah, I, you know, this is why this move is so well-timed. I mean, travel's up in April, May, and June versus 19 for the first time since the pandemic. We're up versus 19 in travel spending, but at a time when consumers are stressed out. So what are we doing? We're providing completely free global roaming of high-speed data in an unprecedented move. Now you can get off that plane and not be faced with a choice of selecting some special plan, or if you forget to select a plan, maybe being slammed with $2,000 in roaming fees like can still happen at AT AT&T. Instead, with T-Mobile Magenta Max, you just travel the world and high-speed data is included for the first time ever for free. And that's a, that's a problem solve. Now, you have to get there by aircraft, and so we're including now free Wi-Fi on flights for Magenta customers across all the major American airlines, American, Delta, Alaska, and coming soon, United. This is huge. You know, this is, you know it costs consumers a billion dollars a year 
to connect to Wi-Fi while flying, not T-Mobile customers. So these are huge like, problems that we're solving at a, I, at a time when consumers are worried about rising prices. So I understand what you're saying. Travel has been stronger. It has caught up and in some cases surpassed 2019 levels. But my question is more looking forward, looking months out to the end of this year when the economy softens, when prices may you know, go lower or consumers don't feel like they want to spend as much. Is this the right move when we're entering this environment, not what we've seen over the past months? Absolutely, because it saves people money, and that's what they expect from T-Mobile. And I think, you know, as we look at a potential recessionary environment, T-Mobile's doubling down on the idea of offering superior value across every category, especially essential categories where people won't drop the category, there will be a flight to value. And we're shoring up T-Mobile's longstanding fame for value because when customers have tight budgets, they will look to save money. And in our category, that's T-Mobile. So, Mike, what do you do with CapEx here uh, in a rising rate environment and when the labor market's still relatively tight? I imagine it's harder to put people up on poles and install equipment than you'd like. Do you ease back on that uh, to, to allow you to provide some of these incentives to boost customer loyalty? Well, luckily, our business is generally um, much more insulated from inflationary pressures than others because we're under, operating under long-term contracts with the tower companies, with our backhaul connectivity, and even with our tech vendors like Ericsson and Nokia. And so that's a big benefit to us. Um, but, but in our business plan, this is the max cap spending year that we see in the near future because this is the max integration year of our merger. So CapEx should fall quite a bit next year, and as we promised our investors in the past, so that we start to see cash flows uh, being released to significantly higher numbers. We've guided to 45% CAGRs on cash flows in the planning period. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing how you navigate this, leaning in to trying to make the consumer happy. Mike Sievert from T-Mobile, thank you. Thanks, John. Very difficult tape today. NASDAQ obviously down along with the Dow, down 734. Let's get a gut check on Warner Brothers Discovery. The stock is sliding, underperforming the broader market. J.P. Morgan has a new note uh, rating the stock neutral, citing a macro environment that could impact ad spending. Analysts also cite, quote, less comfort around the path of the pivot to direct-to-consumer, which could describe the whole industry right now. Price targeted 22, stocks down uh, 9% this morning, as you can see. Uh, John, they, they don't doubt that there are synergies baked into the new construction of the company, but given the headwinds, the macro headwinds, uh, the ad market, they say we have skepticism about the company's ability to grow in aggregate. Yeah, plot twist from the bounce that we were seeing a bit ago. Uh, meanwhile, UBS also out with a note, not about media, more on tech, citing a weak ad market, taking down estimates across tech. Take a listen to a few of these. Alphabet price target cut from 63, sorry, from 3,600 down to 2,650. UBS arguing they see risk to both margins and YouTube numbers. Also slashing targets on Meta and Snap, but keeping a buy rating across the board and calling Twitter the most exposed to ad pullbacks among those platforms, D, Twitter's exposed to a lot more than mm -hmm. ad pullbacks. I think Elon Musk is going to get on a call with some employees today. Yeah, looking forward to anything that comes out of that. Going back to Alphabet, however, they say that Google's relatively well positioned. What's interesting here, Carl, is they actually call out what they say conspicuous investment plans as a risk to margins. 
and pointing out that $9.5 billion investment that Alphabet has planned in U.S. offices and infrastructure. You know, when I sat down with Sundar Pichai a few weeks ago, he said that those are on track. They're still committed to that, but they would remain nimble. You have to wonder with how much Alphabet, we're looking at it right now, down 26 percent year to date, how much that has gone down, how much the market has changed if they might start to rethink some of those plans. Yeah, it takes us way back, John, uh, to a time where Google's moonshot spending was, remember, once seen as irresponsible and then found a new discipline, especially under Porat. It would be a material if they yeah. had a long-term adjustment to their investment plans, uh, given the, the strength and size of their balance sheet. Sure. We're going to turn now to crypto. Uh, Double Line's Jeffrey Gunlock sees more trouble ahead for Bitcoin, sharing his outlook with closing bell overtime yesterday. Have a listen. The trend in crypto is clearly not positive. I mean, it topped out a long time ago. I remember I was with you in July of last year, and Bitcoin was up at like uh, 60,000 or something. And, uh, you know, then then it dropped down to 30,000. It looked like it was going to break down, but it managed to rally back. But it keeps putting in, uh, it it looks like it's being liquidated. So I'm not bullish uh, at at 20,000 or 21,000 on Bitcoin. I I wouldn't be surprised at all if it went to 10,000. So what does that outlook mean for companies like Michael Saylor's MicroStrategy, who took a $205 million Bitcoin-backed loan earlier this year? Well, joining us now to discuss the CEO of the bank that issued that loan, Silvergate's Alan Lane. Alan, good morning to you. It is great to have you on Tech Check. I know that you're not going to talk about specific customers like MicroStrategy, but in a broader sense, how are you thinking about loans, the security of cash, and people's ability to repay it in the crypto system right now? Sure, Deirdre. Thanks for um, having me on this morning. It's great to be with you all. And um, one of the things I think we should do is step back and and separate um, some. Let's 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 separate Bitcoin from the rest of crypto, okay? And then let's um, also uh, talk about stablecoins, which is a specific use of protocols um, to provide tokenized dollars on the internet 24 seven. So um, Silvergate provides services to all of, um, to that whole ecosystem. However, um, we only lend against Bitcoin, okay? Um, And we've been banking this ecosystem now for over eight years. Um, Volatility is not something that we're surprised by. In fact, our platform has been built to support the volatility. And what I mean by that is, is the SEN, the Silvergate Exchange Network, provides 24-7, 365 access to U.S. dollars for our customers around the world. So when we see these types of market, um, this type of market volatility, our customers are relying on the SEN, on Silvergate, to provide them 24-7 access to dollars. Um, and that that platform continues to work. It's got 99.9 something percent uptime um, 24-7. And then uh, get to your specific question on Bitcoin collateralized lending, we launched our Send Leverage product back in the beginning of 2020, pre-pandemic. We launched it in a pilot, uh, again, Bitcoin only. And within three months of launching that pilot, we saw the significant drawdown in March of 2020 when the pandemic hit and everything sold off. The entire market was selling off, not dissimilar to what we're seeing now. Um, and our, our Send Leverage product worked exactly as designed um, and it still continues to work exactly as designed. 
Alan, there's also another distinction between you and perhaps other guys is that you guys are FDIC insured. You talk about, you know, it not being dissimilar to 2020 and perhaps many people say this is just another crypto winter. Um, the crypto world has been through this before. However, it seems to me like a very important differentiation between that period and this one is that rates are rising. So is this time going to be different? How can it not in such a different macro environment? Sure. Well, um, that's that's an important distinction. Um, I thought where you were going to go is 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 not only with rates rising, but with kind of just the whole broader macroeconomic cycle. And I'm sure that's what you're referring to. But because we've been banking this ecosystem for eight years, um, this is not the first time that we've been in this in this market, banking the ecosystem, when rates were rising, um, you know, back several years ago, and now um, the macroeconomic climate was completely different. Um, what what I part of the reason I wanted to make the distinction early on um, between Bitcoin and everything else is because Bitcoin is really the thing that brought Silvergate into this industry back in 2014. We view Bitcoin as the innovation. A lot of these other things are um, technology experiments trying to take different features of the blockchain and um, you know essentially experiment with them. And, and most of those experiments haven't worked. Bitcoin continues to perform. It has had well, zero downtime since we got into this ecosystem. Bitcoin continues to perform. I, I'm, I'm wondering if you're as kind of religious about Bitcoin as Michael Saylor, your, your customer is, and it, are you changing your policy? Because lending money to buy Bitcoin uh, seems like backing mortgages in a bad neighborhood. If you're confident, though, that the home values are going to go back up, then, then does that mean you're not changing your policy at all? Or if Bitcoin does go down to 10000 and stay there, how at risk is Silvergate Capital? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair question. Um, and again, so let's go back and, and let's think about the, the way we lend against Bitcoin or the way we lend against um, residential homes. Um, the key distinction here is our borrowers have to have what, you know, essentially they have to have skin in the game. Um, we are over collateralized, whether we're lending against a home or whether we're lending against Bitcoin. Um, with the case of Bitcoin, I actually believe the risk that we're taking is less than the risk I'm taking with lending against a home because when I'm lending against a home and that value falls, that's a 30-year mortgage. Um, and you know there's there's a real family that's living in that home that you know that we have to consider. With Bitcoin, it is a digital bearer asset that trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week around the globe, which means that when the prices are falling, if our borrowers do not maintain the appropriate collateral coverage, we have the ability to sell the Bitcoin in order to pay back our loan. So, um, so you know, are we changing our policies? No, we're not mm -hmm. because we're, we set this up to where yeah. we are always in an over collateralized position. It's not like a lot of the other stuff you're seeing in DeFi right. where people are, are, are under collateralized. And can't get their money out. Alan, you said you wanted to talk about stablecoins, so let's do that. Are you still planning on rolling out your own? Yes, we absolutely are. Um, and one of the things I wanted to just mention quickly with all the news that's going on um, and the market sell-off today, this might've gotten lost in the news, but Circle, one of our customers who, who issues USDC, 
Um, they also just announced the Eurocoin, which is a Euro-backed stablecoin, and that will be powered by Silvergate and our EuroSEN. Uh, we announced back in February that we are opening up the SEN network to not only support U.S. dollars, but also to support the euro. And Alan, so, um, so yes, we're absolutely bullish on stablecoin. You're so bullish. How are you feeling about still the largest stablecoin in circulation, Tether? Do you have confidence that they can meet redemptions? And does it have the ability to hurt the whole stablecoin or crypto sphere if there's lack of confidence in this one? Sure. And uh, Deirdre, I think the key there is confidence, right? Um, because um, one of the differences between the stable coins that Silvergate supports and Tether, um, we don't bank Tether. Um, and, and the reason for that is because they have not subjected themselves to regulation in the United States. Um, and so unfortunately, I don't have any more insight into Tether than than the rest of the world does. Yeah. Um, it's, it certainly seems um, to be trusted by the crypto markets. Um, but as we've been discussing, the crypto markets have been kind of in a free-for-all. Trusted, but maybe trusted less. The market cap has fallen to about $70 billion. So you have seen some redemptions there. Um, Alan, thanks so much for being with us. Hope to talk to you again soon. You bet. Thank you. Let's get a news update. For that, we turn to Contessa Brewer. Contessa. Hey there, John, and good morning, everybody. Mortgage rates climbed to their highest level since 2008. Freddie Mac says the average 30-year fixed-rate home loan jumped to 5.78% from 5.23% last week. A year ago, this week, that average rate was 2.93%. Cosmetic giant Revlon filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection due to a massive debt load and supply chain problems. The company is expected to receive almost $600 million in financing to help support its day-to-day -day operations. Right now, it's unable to meet one-third of customer demand for its products. And Amazon's annual Prime Day will return July 12th and 13th. Sales will start at 3 a.m. Eastern time and will run for 48 hours in several countries. The company's hoping to top last year's $11 billion in sales. Carl. All right, Contessa, thanks so much. Uh, a heck of a session this morning. Obviously, we are off session lows just a touch. Uh, part of the uh, dynamic may be to watch yields, which were higher across the board except for the two-year earlier this morning, but now yields are now lower across the board. We'll talk about what's driving the selling in a moment. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. give it to you. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Welcome back. We are keeping a close eye on this morning sell-off with the Nicey Fang Plus Index down about four and a third of one percent. Dom Chu has more on what is being hit. Dom. All right, so let's get you a market reset on what's happening so far in trading today. Uh, with regard to the major indices, we are off our session lows, albeit not by much. To give you an idea of what we were, the Dow Industrial, as you can see on the bottom of your screen, down roughly 760-some points. We were down about 860 at the lows of the session so far. So, again, moving off of lows, but not markedly so. It brings our year, uh, record highs to now. The declines for the Dow Industrials, now we are down roughly 19% off the record highs for the Dow, down roughly 23% for the S&P 500, and then down 34% for the NASDAQ Composite to kind of put things in some kind of framing for the record highs that we've seen in the declines. Uh, if you look at within the certain parts of the market, uh, we've now solidified three key sectors as the worst performers so far in 2022, and they house many of the tech and tech-adjacent stocks that we talk about often. Consumer discretionary has lost a third of its value, roughly the same for communication services and technology, down about 29%. So those three sectors, again, leading the S&P lower. If you dig down further within the technology-oriented trade in that particular move lower, we have seen the semiconductors on the day so far down roughly 5.5%, 4.5% declines for the cloud computing-type stocks. Internet-related stocks down 4.5% as well, over 4% losses for technology and software. And then the Global X FinTech ETFs down about 4.25%. So it's been broad-based selling pressure hitting many key parts of the market that some traders have looked to towards that kind of leadership on the up and downside. Within the stock specifically in that NASDAQ 100 trade, among the worst performers on the day so far, you have electric vehicle makers. Tesla is in that mix, but Lucid is right now one of the worst performers. Zscaler is down 8%, Datadog down 7%, Mercado Libre down 6.5%, and north of 7% declines for Airbnb. And of course, we'll bring you an update right now on the mega cap stocks, the ones that make up the large, large bulk of the S&P and the NASDAQ 100 trade. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, those shares you can see they're down anywhere from about two and a half to seven percent right now. Apple's down three and a half percent. Guys, I mean, Carl, Deirdre, John, when it comes down to it, it really is going to be about whether those investors who kind of really favored that large cap technology trade find any kind of a level where they feel comfortable getting back in. It doesn't seem as though that's the trade right now for a lot of folks out there. Don, thanks. You got it. Speaking of large cap technology, Microsoft getting deeper, uh, looking to expand its influence in the CRM market, announcing uh, Viva Sales and its office suite, a uh, product that could have implications for competitors in CRM like Salesforce and others. Joining us now to discuss the strategy behind this launch, Microsoft Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer Judson Althoff. Uh, Judson, good to see you. So, you know, Viva Sales, I first heard about it. I was like, well, what is this really? It's like in the productivity suite, but it's helping salespeople to be more productive. But then co coming down to it, in this environment, companies really need to have productive sales forces to sell what they can. How much of this is about you getting people into that Microsoft productivity environment and then increasing the likelihood that you grow your CRM product with them? 
Well, great. Thanks, John. First of all, uh, we are really excited about this announcement because we believe Viva Sales is the future of work for salespeople. It's the first sales engagement solution that brings together on one screen everything a salesperson needs to be successful in engaging with a customer. From a 360-degree view of the client to next best action to next best offer, even objection handling, as well as sentiment analysis to coach the entire experience all integrated into one frame in how our uh, salespeople integrate with uh, salespeople engage with their customers. Uh, you can think of this as Microsoft 365 and Teams connected to any CRM system in, right. uh, in an interactive way, uh, including Salesforce.com. So, so yeah, when, when I saw sort of the demo of it, I understood this isn't like a separate, completely separate product that you're you know double clicking on. It opens up and you're in the separate interface. It integrates with what you got, but it seems to me like strategically, if you're the main interface, user interface for the worker, for the sales worker, for the sales team, then the loyalty to you is likely to be as high or higher than maybe their likelihood to Salesforce or others. Maybe you sell more dynamics. I mean, is that part of the broader strategy here? Look, our strategy here is actually to deliver value to the client, right? And if you think about what we're going through right now and, and really everything we've talked about on your program so far this morning on the uncertainty in the market, the one thing that is certain is that innovation is the pathway to navigating these times right now and doing so pretty intentionally on the areas where our customers are feeling pain points. If you think about it, uh, the idea of balancing uh, this notion of employee productivity as well as employee satisfaction is top of mind for every C-suite leader and every organization has a sales team that they need to actually make more uh, produ productive and more effective in their work. What this solution does is it brings together every piece of information you might need to engage with a customer interactively inside of Teams. Because these days, we're all talking to customers directly through Teams. And today, if you think of it, if you put yourselves into the shoes of someone who's trying to interact with a customer these days, right now there's a flood of information they have to manage. Right. They're connected in their voice and video chat. There's streams of information coming online. There's their CRM system. There's their notes. What we do with Viva Sales is we bring that all together in one canvas with the backbone of AI shaping the next best action and the next best suggestion out to the customer right. and have bi-directional read write back into the CRM system so salespeople don't have to spend their time with the overhead of interacting with CRM solutions and actually can spend their time interacting with their customers. And in a hybrid work environments where the teams aren't physically together, I guess having that common set of data uh, probably more important. What, what are customers and potential customers telling you about the problems they need software to solve in the sales process right now? Is it that they're having to do more with the same number of people, fewer people? Is, is that what you're trying to solve with, with this product? Yeah, spot on. Look, there's a there's a talent shortage everywhere. Uh, we've been talking all morning about uh, the employment rates uh, and how they're at record lows. And so you have to make sure that you have an attractive work environment for salespeople. The reality of the situation, though, is that salespeople spend about two thirds of their time either preparing for interaction with their customers or doing some sort of postmortem interaction and reporting back uh, to their upper management. What Viva Sales does is it makes all of that um, completely 
completely transparent to how they interact with their customers. All of the information they need to interact with their customers is available right through Teams. There's deep integration with Microsoft 365 and Outlook uh, for all of their follow-up emails. Um, the whole system, again, learns and provides sentiment analysis to coach back on how sellers can better engage with their clients and actually can track where things maybe went well as a part of the sales call, as well as, frankly, where things need to improve so they can get better in their next interaction. And then again, on the postmortem, on the backside of it, it all writes back into the CRM system of record, and we do this with any CRM system, including Salesforce, so that salespeople can be more productive, mm -hmm. and that so customers looking, our customers looking to hire great salespeople in market can provide a better experience for people in this day of, of you know, navigating hybrid yeah. work. Right. Hey, Judson, it's Deirdre. Quick last one from me. Um, this is a really broad one on enterprise software. You have a very good view of what customers are wanting in the current moment. What kind of software do customers get rid of first in an economic slowdown? What can be it's a great question, Deirdre. So what we're seeing right now is customers continuing to need to innovate and need to use technology to solve critical problems like the future of work, like supply chain, like sustainability, of course, all having a backbone around cyber. But customers need to choose wisely because these days this notion of best of breed um, is quite frankly a luxury that most customers aren't going to be able to afford. So being able to standardize, uh, frankly, is the path forward. And we see Microsoft as in a pretty strong position to help our customers navigate this because we do in fact have the most comprehensive and trusted cloud in the industry. Uh, definitely in position to get that share of wallet and, and standardize. Judson, uh, Chief Commercial Officer of Microsoft, thank you. Thanks, John. Broad-based selling remains in place today. Just a handful of stocks in the S&P are green. And leading the declines are a lot of travel and leisure names. Etsy as well. Warner Brothers Discovery on that uh, neutral rating over at JPM Dow. That's still about 100 points from 30K, which we lost earlier this morning. We'll be right back. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. give it to you. How about that? That's a premium Bangin' Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Let's get a gut check on Twitter and Elon Musk. Twitter, one of the few stocks that were hired today. Musk is scheduled to virtually meet with employees today, answering some pre-submitted questions from his maybe future workforce. And according to the journal, Musk is expected to reaffirm his commitment to buy the company and maybe comment on remote work, maybe the advertising business. Shares have turned around since that article first broke as investors try to parse whether he's really trying to get out of buying the company or perhaps just trying to renegotiate the price. Uh, shares this morning down about two-thirds of a percent, 37.7. Of course, the most recent high, uh, D, back in April, uh, you were closer to 51, which is obviously, John, uh, closer to the actual offer. Yeah. And hey, investors renegotiating the price on everything in the public markets as well these days, Carl. After the break, the next big test for the market and especially demand in the tech industry, Adobe. 
Results are after the bell. We're back in two minutes. NASDAQ is off the worst levels, but still down, as you can see, about 4%. Our Christina Partzinevelos has an update on today's trade. Hey, Christina. Hi, Carl. I want to put it into perspective because literally there's one company right now out of the NASDAQ 100 that is positive, and that one company is AstraZeneca, but just barely. We're seeing broad-based selling across all sectors. Uh, the NASDAQ is actually down 20% in just three months alone, trading at its lowest level since September 2020. We know Lucid, still the worst performer, down almost. Look at that. Look, oh, 10% now. FinTech is also falling, but you can see names like PayPal, Block, Affirm, all struggling over the past week. A firm down 40% in June alone. And then we've got semiconductors struggling. Every constituent in the SMH ETF down at least 3% or more. You've got Universal Display, On, Semi, Advanced Micro, AD, AMD, all down about 8%. And on a month-to-date basis, these names are 20% or lower. And then Kathy Woods, ARC, biggest holdings aren't spared from this bloodbath. We're seeing Zoom down about 7%, Tesla 7 Roku almost 4%. Speaking of Chinese technology, Roku, we're seeing, we did see recently a turnaround on better than expected retail sales in China, stronger uh, sovereign bond sales, and a bet that maybe Chinese policy will be more accom- accommodative. But that isn't helping them today. Baidu, Alibaba, Pinduoduo, all hovering. Yeah, Pinduoduo down about uh, three, almost four percent. And if we want to talk about a crash, take a look at DocuSign. Helps you e-sign documents. That stock is down 62% this year alone. Traders settling on the notion across the board that the Fed may not come to the rescue anymore, even at the risk of a recession. John? Christina, thank you. Let's check in on Adobe. That stock down 3% today ahead of earnings, which means it's doing a little better than the S&P and NASDAQ so far, actually. Adobe's numbers will be another test of software's resilience. Shares took a tumble after its last earnings report, the impact from halting sales in Russia, one of the main concerns there. Now analysts are focusing on the durability of consumer spending in this challenging macro environment, uh, though the street still Pretty bullish with more than 80% of analysts calling Adobe a buy. Stock's down 45% from its all-time high last November. And Carl, 45%, depending on the cohort you're judging against. You know, just Christina just mentioned DocuSign. Not mm-hmm. that bad. But this is one of those names that's big and yet been growing. So the tone going to be particularly important here. Yeah, uh, guidance is going to be key. I know. I see Morgan Stanley says that operating margins, in their words, are likely the easiest area to please if management backs off some investments, uh, D, and keep those margins at least a little bit more yeah. flattish rather than down year on year. And it's an early reporter, so indeed it will set the tone. Uh, we'll see what it brings us after the bell. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing before we go, take a look at Tesla. Shares down more than 7% this morning. The company's raising prices across the board. It last raised them in March. Uh, the less expensive models jumping between two dollars and $3,000. In the meantime, the price of one of its SUV models jumped by $6,000 overnight. Uh, today, D. Morgan Stanley, Adam Jonas uh, says their target of $1,300 uh, mm. still bakes in nearly 9 million units by 2030. That's still a long ways away, though. A long ways away, indeed, nearly double. Uh, you got to wonder what that means for the other electric EV automakers, John. If Tesla's got to raise its prices and it's been working on its manufacturing for years, what are they going to do? Rivian down 9%, Lucid down nearly 10 I find it so fascinating. There's like this counter story. In this inflationary environment, 
Carl, for, for Elon Musk and for these crypto companies, including Binance, the question is, what can they buy with this inflated currency they have before it deflates, which is so much different from what the average American is dealing with? Ah, that's well said. We're going to find out uh, in the months and years to come. By the way, we'll see if the downside reversal in yields and Europe's close can help. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.